All right, everyone, if you would, go ahead and open um, your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 13 through 17, uh, page 1013 in your pew Bibles. And we're continuing in a sermon series in James titled Spiritual Living. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the most famous cello player, alive today, Yo-Yo Ma. He's the best in the world. And in an interview, Yo-Yo said that the person who has most helped him as a performer is an unlikely person that you would think, someone from the far other end of the musical spectrum, Bobby McFerrin. And yet they've become quite close friends and buddies, their families vacation together in the Berkshires. And in that interview, Yo-Yo described a time when he was just jamming, playing with Bobby McFerrin and his band. And, and Yo-Yo Ma was totally into it, just totally grooving along. That, what, that is until, until Bobby shouted over the music, Stop, Yo-Yo, stop. You're not listening to what we are doing. And Yo-Yo Ma, in great humility, said, You're right. James's words to us this morning say, stop, stop what you're doing. You're, you're not synchronized with the music of God. James wants you and me. He wants us to stop and to see, to see if the plans of our lives line up with the plans that God has for this world and for us. And so the question is, do you have the humility to say you're right? James 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, if we want to live in line with the music of his plans for us, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word. It's powerful and effective as your spirit dwells in us to make this truth come to life. May we be a repentant people, a people, no matter how long we've been Christians, a people that are willing to sit under your word and hear from you. Uh, to be transformed in all the ways that you would have us. May you work that spiritual work in our lives. Even now we pray. Amen. In the middle of this short passage, James asks his readers a critical question. Do you see that? He says, what is your life? It's a critical question for us too. What is your life? What is it about? What drives it? What values does your life cherish? What hopes and dreams animate your life? One way you can be certain 
what your life is all about is by looking at your bank statements or your credit card statements. Just what do you spend your money on? Remember, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Another way to discern what your life is all about is to investigate the plans that capture your heart. That's what James is focusing on this morning. James challenges us to have a critical eye concerning how we go about making plans. Do you make plans like the rest of the world, or do you make plans that seek to honor God? This morning, we must each be like Yo-Yo Ma, humble enough to, to pause and to reflect upon whether or not our lives are synchronized with God and his eternal plans. So to the question, what is your life? James helps us to see that our lives take on an eternal glory when we plan according to the will of God. This morning we're going to look at that. We're going to look at two areas. First, we're going to look at the problem, and then we will look at the principles. The problem and the principles. First, the problem. The problem is articulated in verses 13 and 16. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Just look at us go. Verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Before we look at the problem, let's look at what the problem isn't. There's two things the problem isn't. The problem isn't planning. In numerous places in the Bible, we're encouraged to plan. Jesus spoke uh, in, 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 of the need to count the costs before building a tower. Joseph advised Pharaoh to what? To plan during the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine that follow. So planning itself is wise and biblical. All of us should be faithful planners. Some of you actually need to do a little more planning in your lives. See, when the gospel gets hold of you, you become a person who plans better. You plan on the six days of the week, Monday through Saturday, to get your work done so you can rest on the Sabbath. You plan a budget that honors God and you stick to it so that you can give of your first fruits for his kingdom work. So, so planning itself isn't the problem. And neither is a profit, making a profit. You know, in our society today, there's a number of people who like to tell you that making a profit is immoral. But this is false. Wayne Grudem, he's got a book on our book table. It's titled Business for the Glory of God. He points out that profit is good in many different ways. Uh, one way he points out is the, I'll just, that, that when you make a profit, you've actually added value. He gives the illustration of a baker who's got $100 of input costs, like flour and yeast. And he uses his capital of an, of an oven, and he uses creative skills that he's trained in to bake bread, which he sells for $200 a day. He makes a $100 a day profit. And guess what? He makes that profit because he's added value. Most people don't want to take flour and yeast and go home and make their own bread. It's a value. So, so making a profit in itself is not a bad thing. So we're to plan, and it's okay to make a profit. The problem is, as James points out, is that our hearts can worship uh, the things that we plan for. We can bow down to the successful career. We can bow down to the God of possessions and wealth. We can even bow down to the God of the nice, lovely family that everyone thinks is so great. We can put our hope in these things. And so James rebukes this way of living by calling it boastful arrogance in verse 16. 
You know, when I was a young man in college, and uh, I planned to be a billionaire. Not a millionaire, a billionaire. I read books of successful men and women, and I went to a top business school. From there, I went into sales, and my first day on the job, maybe it was my second, I, I said, I'm going to be the number one sales rep in this entire company on the third year. I did it after two I left that company and I went to start my own business and I created a goal, a plan that I was going to have a, a Ferrari by the time I was 35. And you know what? If God hadn't graciously intervened in my life, graciously come and given me life in Christ, I would have a garage full of exotic cars and I'd be boasting of what a great and profitable man Mark Middlecoff has become. I remember the many times I sat down before coming to faith in Christ and as I was scratching out my plans for my computer company, a lot of it sounded like James's words in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Come now, you who say, today, or maybe tomorrow, but definitely today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and, and we're going to make a profit. In James's day, the way to make a profit was to trade. Let me ask you, is your life all about you and your plans? They don't have to be big plans. You can have small plans that distance you from God, can you not? James is saying to you and to me, humbly look at your plans. See if your life is playing out of sync with God. The problem is we're all susceptible to living arrogantly with plans that aren't God's plans, attaching our hearts to them. That's the problem. Now for the principles. Here's the big idea. James presents us with four principles that we can be in danger of neglecting. I'm borrowing these from Sinclair Ferguson, great teacher on this passage the first principle is this, if you're taking notes, the principle of the unpredictability of life. James wants us to picture some merchants with a, perhaps a map over a table back in Jesus' day. And, and they're saying, perhaps we'll go here, or perhaps we'll go there, and we'll invest our lives for a year, and we're going to make a big profit. They will just roll in. Remember, planning isn't bad, but foolish, self-directed planning is. Why? Um, because the, these men are planning without reference to the absolute sovereignty of God and the unpredictability of life. Such presumes that we can make any plans we please. We can go today or tomorrow. The choice is ours, and we will succeed. Never mind if our plans are part of God's will for us or not. The 19th century Scottish minister, John Murray McShane, said this. Listen, here's, here's how he lived his life. He says, as to myself, I have no plans. As to myself, I have no plan. Not that he didn't follow plans, but his plans came from prayerfully seeking the Lord's will. He only lived 29 years on this planet. But his life had a huge impact for Christ for all eternity. McShane made plans, but he made them knowing that his Lord could take him out of his hands any day. 
And therefore, he held loosely to the plans that he lived out. McShane held loosely to everything. Not my will, but thine be done. That is the best way to live life. Because why? Life is unpredictable. We are frail creatures who cannot captain our own ships. To think so is boastful arrogance. Not only is life unpredictable, James next shows us the principle of the brevity of our lives. The brevity of our lives. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a, check that out, a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes. Have you ever sat by a lake or a river early in the morning and you saw the mist, the fog rising up? It's beautiful, isn't it? But what happens? The sun comes out. The heat dries it up. Now, listen, my goal here isn't to put you in a depression. <laughs> but the truth is, your life, listen, even the young people here, your life is like a mist when compared with eternity. Last Tuesday, Jennifer Riordan of Albuquerque was on a Southwest Airlines flight 1380 heading home to be with her family. The left engine exploded, broke her window, almost sucked her out. She died. James is saying life is like that. It's a mist. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's prideful, boastful arrogance to think that you do. But we tend to live as if this life really is long. Do we not? When you're in your teens or your 20s, you think 40-year-olds are really old. (laughs) And then at some point, Lord willing, you turn 72, and then you know with certainty that life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. My friends, we must let this principle of the brevity of our lives pervade our thinking. As Ferguson says, it is not this life that is long. It is the life to come that is long. James is saying that not only are you not making your plans with reference to God, you don't realize that you are making your plans without reference to the big thing, eternity. The truth of the matter is that life is short, and it is eternity that is long. No doubt James is remembering the words of his brother Jesus, who said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world in this lifetime, and yet forfeits his soul for all eternity? Jesus came to earth to live and to die and to rise again, so that you and I may be partakers of this eternal life. And so, all of our planning must take into account our mistiness. All of our planning must take into account account the eternal glorious life that Jesus has awaiting for all who have trusted in him. If only we would really believe. If only our hearts were more mesmerized by what Christ has waiting for us than by what this frail life offers Then, then you and I will live not only with great wisdom, but also with true joy, true hope, no matter our circumstances. 
to follow Christ now, to say, not my will, but thy will be done, brings blessing now and certainly for all eternity. The question is, do you believe this? Will you allow your heart to be gripped by the truth that you are but a mist? But also, your Savior became a mist for you so that you may experience eternal life. Are you living for eternity? That's the principle, the brevity of life. Now for the principle, it's kind of a long one, the principle of the folly of excluding God in the decision-making of life. The folly of excluding God in the decision-making of life. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, it's possible to be neurotic with these words. Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. I'm going to the bathroom, Lord willing. <laughs> but let us not mis, let not misuse negate proper use. The Christian's entire life in response to God's mercy is to be what? Romans 12.1. Offered up as a living sacrifice to God holy and pleasing to him. This is our proper response to Christ who gave himself for us and who taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My friends, my life, your life, is to be lived for every moment of every day given for God as a response to his mercy towards us, to be lived out for his will, for his desires. Think of how different your life will be when you mature in this area. The decisions that you make will be saturated with God's will for your life. Father in heaven, I thank you for this pay raise. All my coworkers are getting, they're upgrading their vehicles, but what shall I do? How will you have me invest my pay raise for your kingdom? Perhaps that church plan in Haiti or perhaps that couple in the church that are struggling. If I'm hearing right from you, Lord, maybe I can give each of them $200 a month. Now answer this. Do you think your life will be better or worse if you live it out according to God's will for you? course it'll be better you might not drive a new car every three years but you will not be shackled by material possessions and therefore you'll be free to give it away like others cannot even experience millions of people miss out on the joy of giving as a response to God's grace but you if you live this way you will live and give with joy knowing that you're living and and your giving is making an eternal difference in this world And it's pleasing to God. And it's a fun thing to do. You were made for living according to God's will and his ways. Do you remember? This is how our Lord lived. According to the will of his Father. 
the night before Jesus died for our sins, Jesus cried out, if there's anything, any other way that your redemption could come to this broken world, if there's any other way than me going to the cross, please do it. But not my will, but yours be done. In dying for you and me, Jesus opened up heaven to us. Though we were once far from God and deserving his displeasure, Christ took our displeasure on himself on the cross to bring us near to God. And we are now, because of our faith in Christ, sons and daughters of God. God is our heavenly Father. He delights and cares for us. But more than that, he is God, the almighty, powerful God of creation. And so we are wise to know his will, to seek it in our lives, to live it out. We must live by the principle of knowing that it is folly to seek anything apart from God's will. Lastly, the principle of the poison of self-sufficiency. The poison of self-sufficiency. James is trying to make a breakthrough into his readers' lives. It's with love and a heavy heart that he writes to them. Look at verse 16. It's with love that he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, it's evil. What kind of boasting is this? This is the boasting of the self-made man or the self-made woman who doesn't need God or who just pays lip service to God. You know, there are many people who say they believe in God who might even make a contribution to the church just to keep God quiet so they can go about living their lives of self-sufficiency. James says, beware, it is a poison to live the self-sufficient life. Ferguson says that the problem with the spirit of self-sufficiency is that when you have it, you don't know you have it. Maybe it'd be good to ask a friend, a spouse, or someone who knows you well. We tend to be blind to these realities, do we not? You can become absorbed with yourself and your own accomplishments. You become blind to the reality that you are living a poisoned life. Jesus said that all who what drink from his cup it is all who trust in him. What does he say? He says, a spring of living water will well up in your life. Living water. But the self-sufficient person is like a stagnant poisonous pond. No water coming in, no water going out. That is why living with this arrogant, boastful attitude is what James says is evil. Being a stagnant pond in a world that needs the life-giving water of Jesus Christ is an outright, outright rejection of God who and what he calls us to be. That's why it's evil. Like Yo-Yo Ma, who understood that his playing was out of sync with the band, we need humility. We need repentance. Otherwise, we'll continue to live like stagnant ponds lifeless concerning all that really matters and unable to give life. And so verse 17 is meant actually to produce humility in us. Look at it. 
So whoever knows the right thing to do and yet fails to do it, for him it is sin. James is hoping to chip away at his, at his reader's self-sufficiency. Verse 17 is, is meant to cause the penitent to, to cry out afresh for God's grace. See, we all violate verse 17 every day, do we not? Is there not something good that you know that should be done with every day of your life, pretty much? I know many of the times, most of the times, you probably do it, but that's not the point. Let's be honest. Every day there's presented some opportunity to do good. Instead, we say, you know, I'm tired. Or no, not that person. She doesn't deserve it. Verse 17 is meant to drive us back to verse 10 of chapter 4. Remember, this is all one letter. Last week, what did we see last week? Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Since you and I cannot simply do the right thing, no matter how well we know it, we must humbly ask the Lord to lift us up. And his grace does lift up everyone who humbly recognizes their need of grace. But know this, verse 10 isn't so much a command as it is a promise. To all who will humble themselves before God, guess what? He will exalt you. That's his promise to you. That which we long for, a life lived with meaning and purpose and delight by God's grace, is there for the asking. He will exalt all who humble themselves. That's a promise. Do you believe that? Do you desire that? Do you desire to be not a stagnant pond, but a life-giving source of refreshment for this world? Do you desire that? Well, guess what? Humble yourself. It's there for the taking. The Lord will lift you up. So how are we to respond this morning? You know, I think one of the problems with our modern society is we're so fast and furious and busy we don't pause to reflect, or even if we do, we only do it for like half a second. Remember earlier in James in chapter 1, I know it's been a while, but he, 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 he said, be doers of the word, not just hearers. Don't be like that man who looks into the mirror, sees himself, and then forgets what it's all about in like a minute later, right? The word of God is meant for us to chew upon, to drive into our souls, to transform us. There's so much noise in our lives, though. So a good thing we can do is actually sit down in quiet and reflect upon the word of God that we just read and prayerfully let it change us. You know, what's the motto here at Grace Church? You guys ready? Alive in Christ. That is our motto. And so with this as our motto, the old self must be what? Put to death. And as I know far too well, that old self doesn't die off easy. So what must we do? We must come to hate the old self-sufficient person and trust more in Christ. He's not our friend, that old person we used to be. We need to kill him off. The great Puritan John Owen wrote a book titled The, the Mortification of Sin. No one uses that word, but we, we get mortician. Uh, another way you could put it is putting to death that old life of sin. And in his book, he says this. One of the keys is to, here, this is his words, not mine, is to load your conscience with guilt 
to load your conscience with guilt. This is the exact opposite of what our world tells us, right? The world says, you're fine. Don't worry about it. No. If you want to put to death the old self, we must load our conscience and say, how is this possible that I'm still this way and you still love me with your grace? So let us load up our consciences with what is wrong with us. Think about it for as long as necessary. As long as necessary for you to say, I'm dead to that old self. Now, by your grace, in humility, exalt me in Christ that I may honor you with my life. Your will be done. In a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper. We're going to have a chance to come forward. I want you to just pause where you are. You don't, just because you're in the front row doesn't mean you need, need to be first. Pause for as long as you like to reflect upon any way in your life in which your plans really, as you honestly look at them, are not God. You're playing out of sync with him. And, and take time to repent and then look towards these elements and remind, be reminded of, the, of the, the bread and the wine signify what Christ has done for you to free you from all that and to give you power and strength to live in this moment for him and for his glory. And to the question, what is your life? You can answer with confidence. My life is hid with Christ. All my failures, he's taken away. All his obedience, it's now mine by faith. What is your life? My life is now alive in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I fail, his grace is ever present to exalt me. I want to end with a story. You perhaps have read it. We've got the book on our book table by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. Some of you have read it. So the story may sound familiar to you. But before he put it in print, it was a message that he delivered to young college students, thousands and thousands of them. And I'm going to read you what he said, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, okay? John Piper. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter and be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the petals you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't even have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to be known. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. But I know that not everyone in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and quick and a quick and easy death and no hell. If you could have all that, you'd be satisfied even without God. You don't give a rip if your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that is a tragedy in the making. 
About three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life, a nurse. She poured it out for the one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura Edwards was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes on the car gave way. Over the cliff they go. They're gone, killed instantly. I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, a whole life driven by one idea of Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. Is this a tragedy? No. That is not a tragedy. That is glory. I'll tell you what tragedy is. I'll read to you from the Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. They now live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, says Piper. And people today are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice car, a nice house, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, at my shell collection, and I've got a nice swing, and look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby, not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Let's pray. Father, we forget our mistiness. We foolishly and, of course, pridefully think we're going to live a long, long time and we get to do fun things for ourselves. And, and yet your word shows us that that is foolishness and that a life lived apart from you means an eternity lived apart from you. But more than that, in a positive sense, we get to walk in your presence, to be changed by your grace, to make God-glorifying plans that, that have meaning and purpose for all eternity. We pray that you would remind us of this, that we would sit and be quiet before you, that we would load our consciences with our guilt and then be freed from that guilt by the precious blood of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.